You're listening to Cobs and Spikes, a podcast from the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Centre, Simit. I'm your host, Mary Donovan. This is a space where we break down complex science into bite-sized, audio-rich explainers. We have real conversations with experts from around the world who are innovating in the fields of agriculture, food security, and nutrition. And we listen to stories that link Simit's research with real-world applications. In this episode, I will have a conversation with Juan Gonzalo Jaramillo Mejia, Project Manager and Researcher on Inclusion, Innovation, and Social Protection. He has worked for various United Nations organizations, such as the Food and Agriculture Organization and the International Labor Organization, before working with CIMIT and the CGIAR. He now works with the World Food Program. Juan Gonzalo focuses on the extension of social protection to the informal and rural sectors its impact in terms of food security, nutrition, and gender and development interventions. His work on social protection has been published by the FAO, Development Pathways, and socialprotection.org, and he is the first to explore and delineate a research agenda around this topic at CIMIT. Why should CIMIT, as a research and international development organization, explore the social protection field? You know, the first thing I would do is define what social protection is, which is a, a common challenge for people to understand. So I always use this, this definition from the ODI from almost 20 years ago that defines social protection as the public actions taken in response to levels of vulnerability, risk, and deprivation of poverty, where, which are deemed socially unacceptable. And social protection as a field, therefore, has emerged as a, as a critical entry point to reduce poverty, particularly rural poverty. And one of the things I like to explain to people also, it's through a metaphor to a house. Social protection is a house, but you have three different rooms or three different components. So the first one, which is quite critical for the work we do, as, as the other ones, but it's particularly important, it's social assistance mechanisms, which we see in Mexico that has been a pioneer with programs like Oportunidades, Progresa, Prospera. We have in Colombia Familias in Acción. We have in Brazil Bolsa Familia. So we also have as a social protection intervention in that field of social assistance, ProAgro, which is a rural intervention. So basically what they do is that they use cash transfers, input transfers, asset transfers, school feeding programs as well, subsidies to support people's ability to provide for themselves, to meet basic consumption needs. That is the first room. The second room is that of social insurance or what we know social security. It is more institutionalized. So we have weather-based insurance. We have unemployment benefits. We have certain forms of microfinance for some. We also have maternity leave. We have um, disability grants when, when somebody cannot work and has contributed to social security schemes. And finally, you have labor market interventions and regulations, which is the third room that talks about you know the issues of creating a, a, a minimum wage and conditions that are decent uh, and not affecting people's health. So 
you have three different three different rooms and what we see is that social protection is a field it's, it's offering for rural development and for the reduction of rural poverty great opportunities which of course are no different to Simmons mission so what we're looking at here and how is it that Simmons focuses on is that of course you improve livelihoods through maize and wheat science so one of the things that Simmons has done is to to think beyond its, its areas of work, its immediate areas of work on improving seeds and agricultural practices to think how when I have these great prototypes that I've been working in my labs and conceptually developing over the years, how can I make sure that they get to the farmer? How can I make sure that even if they get to the farmer, people can benefit as much as they can from them? And that is where social protection interventions and the plethora of instruments that it offers come very much in handy to the organization. How can I maximize the outcomes of the, the work that I do with the complementarity of social protection, of cash transfers, of input and asset transfers in rural communities, the most remote and marginalized? How can I use social protection interventions that help people not only to meet their basic consumption needs, but also prevent and, and prepare for risks that they that may be life cycle related, you know, or can be climate change driven? How can people have reduce, uh, mitigate the likelihood of, of that risk of affecting them in disproportionate ways? And even if a shock hits, how can they cope with this without really compromising their human capital uh, and their assets for the future. And, and obviously, of course, how can I also promote the livelihoods and the capabilities of these people through these programs and transform the social and power structures that prevent people from really harnessing these opportunities. Therefore, social protection has become really important for CIMIT to explore in the synergies and the interaction that it has with its own science and its mission, which is improving the livelihoods of rural and agricultural farmers. In addition to social protection, you also work on social inclusion issues, particularly on gender. Could you tell us why it is important to have a social inclusion lens to CIMIT's work? Well, I will respond this very briefly and then expand in the explanation. So, in simple terms, we need to have a social inclusion lens to understand who are we reaching and who aren't we reaching with our science. This is to ensure that nobody's left behind. That is, in, in very simple terms, why the organization has and we have created an agenda on social inclusion for seven. But I think that it's important then, and this is the, the broader explanation, uh, we need to understand how we came to this point. And the point is, the work that the organization has advanced on, ge on gender has been groundbreaking, particularly with this multi-year study called Genovate, which I really want people to go and look at, because it has been able to reveal the ways in which gender 
norms, pervasive joint gender norms, hindered the ability of individuals, both women and men, to innovate. But not only to innovate and create new things, but actually to take technologies that are already existing to their service, to improve their ability to to produce the food they need and that we need in our society. So it is very important to look at how not only gender social norms, but other social norms are impacting the ways in which people can access, use, and control resources effectively. There is where we are looking with this social inclusion agenda, using gender as the initial entry point. We're looking at other issues such as race, ethnicity, ableism, sexual orientation, citizenship status like migration, the educational attainment and profession of people that are creating compounded disadvantages on top of gender for women and men to really adopt, innovate, and harness the opportunities that are at hand. So one of the key things I want to say is we have also realized that sometimes gender is not the issue particularly, that there are other elements, for example, in women, that not all women are vulnerable, but there are certain types of women that are particularly vulnerable because of their social class, because of their race, and their ethnicity and ableism. So it's not the same to be a rural black woman in a remote rural area than to being a white woman in a city with master's PhD and a secure job. So if we understand that not all women are vulnerable, and we kind of dismantle this this mainstream narrative, we're able to better respond to the vulnerabilities of certain population groups. And therefore, this has brought us to also look at how men, particularly depending on where they're located, what are the sort of identities they recognize for their own or that society labels them with, how are they impacting their ability to to innovate and access the opportunities that are available and that through our science we're aiming to to bring to those people. But we're looking from CIMIT, how is it that there are invisible, intangible barriers that prevent our knowledge and our science and our practices to really reach those that need it the most. And that's why a social inclusion lens and a social inclusion research agenda has been structured and developed taking gender as an entry point. Something you have done has created a lot of interest among the CG system. While focusing on women and advancing a feminist agenda, you've explored the role of men and the different kinds of masculinities. In fact, being chosen as a speaker to give a presentation on masculinities at CIMIT headquarters on International Women's Day was a disruptive choice. And then you gave the same presentation for the FAO in Chile. Can you tell us about this? Why discuss men on International Women's Day? So what that day did was say, you know, International Women's Day, it's not only about women. Women have opened the discussion through, like taking the veil out of so many of the gendered norms and the gender inequalities that we confront every day that are not only circumscribed to women, but are also a reality for men. What I've been wanting to do is 
help our organization and our community and development partners to understand that we are in a patriarchal system and therefore we need to look at what are those dominant stereotypical images and established practices that uh, across society create a normative structure that legitimize an ideal meaning of being a man, particularly of what is right, which is very manly, and also these ideal meanings of, of being a woman that are quite influenced but 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 the authority and the power that men exercise in society. So the predominant social normative and power structure in society generally privileges men. And certain types of masculinities, not all of them. And and that you know, we need to stress and remind people that we have a patriarchal system that we need to dismantle not only for the benefit of women, but also for the benefit of men. And then what I try to do is critically decompose what do we mean when we talk about masculinities and, and give a framework of understanding on, on how do these masculinities chip in or, or influence the work that we do. Because, as I've said before, and I want to, to highlight, the gender social norms permeate, mediate, and sculpt the invisible and visible stru social structures in which the adult rural development interventions that we promote work, so either facilitating or hindering the achievement of its objectives. So we need to care about gender and we need to bring men to that conversation with humbleness. But, but do you think that this agenda on men and masculinities aligns with the gender development approaches? Or, or is it a separate discourse? Well, it is not independent, and, and, and that is a great question, Mary, because men and masculinities it has become a field of inquiry within the gender field, thanks to, to the research and the efforts of mainly women to take the veil out of an understanding of the gender order that in which we as men have a role to play we are affected by gender norms and we are creator of gender norms. But when I talk about this gender order or, or what I'm trying to push with this presentation and this area of research and inquiry within the gender field is I want to highlight maybe that we have not really been able to keep up with the pace of change transforming the traditional gender order. Many of our assumptions about gender are increasingly out of phase with many people's lives and self-understandings. And I think that the feminist perspective, the feminist agenda, has really allowed us to inquire about what's the role that men have to play. But it has also done it in a very circumscribed fashion. Most of the work that is done on men and masculinities within gender and development, it's focused in areas where men are unavoidable. I mean, on sexual and reproductive health, whether you cannot avoid who did you have an intercourse with, and second, uh, violence against women, in which you cannot avoid to think about who was the person that, that was violent against you. What I'm trying to push is an agenda that complementary 
synergetic with the research agenda on gender and development, it's looking at poverty. It's looking at men within poverty interventions and how by not including men, we are certainly posing greater challenges, expectations and responsibilities on women. So one of the key things that I do with the poverty reduction discourse is to look at care, trying to change and disrupt the assignation of responsibilities that women should be the ones taking care of children, preparing the food, and taking care of the hygiene of the house, and washing the clothes, things like this. I think that men just, we need to talk about those things in which men are, have been avoided for long and need to be put at the center and saying, you have a due share of responsibility here that we need you to just jump in and do it so we can balance the burden that women have. You were recently selected by the CGIAR gender platform to present CIMIT research at the Seeds of Change conference in Australia. Can you tell us about the studies you designed and presented? Yes, well, I conceived two studies. One, uh, which I developed in conjunction with Carolina Camacho, was looking at the gender perspectives and changing roles in the break of the intergenerational transmission of agricultural-based livelihoods, knowledge, and genetic resources in rural Mexico. I know it sounds quite long, and it is indeed. But basically what we were doing with that study was looking at how there's been a break in the inheritance of knowledge, genetic resources, and agricultural livelihoods from one generation to the other. So how is it, why is it that the youth in rural areas of Mexico are leaving agriculture and leaving behind the assets, the knowledge, the genetic resources, the seeds that their families have kept for years and that have been their base for their survival. So that was quite interesting. This was focused in Hala, looking at the Hala maze and how to preserve this 60 centimeters long variety of maize in Nayarit. But also Carolina brought a really good study from Morelos uh, that was looking at, at the factors that were preventing the transmission from one generation of the other of those three critical elements and how could agricultural interventions really consider those factors, those expectations and aspirations of young women and men so that agricultural, rural development interventions can respond to them and address them. So that was quite interesting. But the one that I not only conceived but actually fully developed was one that I titled The Leading Role of Indigenous Rural Women, Putting Food on the Table and Subsistence Agricultural Farms in rural Mexico. And then I asked myself, and that's also part of the long title is, what is the role that social protection is playing and what is the changing role of men due to this that indigenous women are playing in for food security. So that one really looked at how is it that infrasubsistence uh, households 
in rural Mexico make ends meet through the support they've received every month, every year from Proagro, Prospera, and an old age pension called Five Plus. But other complementary programs that are not as broadly disseminated as this tree and that are implemented by the government of Mexico that are, you know, state focused, which is one on vulnerable people giving in-kind food transfers every month and another one giving ratios of, of milk as well, which is called Liconza. So I looked at how women that are the main recipients of most of this program, how is it that they are using these resources and the assistance they receive in general to really ensure the food security of their households and how in that, in that decisive role they're playing, how is it that, that men are reacting to that and what is the role that they're playing? We found that social protection programs are doing a, a great deal for rural and marginalized people in some of the most remote areas of Mexico, but that they have huge, huge programmatic failures and pitfalls that don't let the programs to actually exploit their potential. And in terms of gender, we see that instead of challenging the, the traditional gender order and the division of, of roles between productive and reproductive, they're actually exacerbating them. As uh, actually very funny enough, as a research from the early 2000s by, by Professor Maxine Molino from UCL showed several, several years ago, so it was in, in some way, amongst many other findings, was quite sad to see that the uptake of, of the research by those policymakers, even if they've been informed about this, these issues, it's, it's just, it's not just happening as it should programmatically. This is very related to what we discussed earlier about gender, those living in rural areas, indigenous peoples, and, and other social markers, and how gender needs to be taken into account in social protection programs and policies. Can you tell us more about the findings of this study on indigenous rural women, social protection, and the changing role of men? Yes, of course. Well, basically, uh, the findings, I, I clustered them into five policy issues that we encounter while doing the fieldwork in southern Mexico, particularly in Oaxaca. And what we found is that those five issues are, first of all, the narratives, the policy narratives. Secondly, the, the impact of conditionalities, that I'll explain later what they are. Thirdly, the exclusion errors that they have in the targeting. Fourth, on the regularity and predictability of the benefits. And fifth, on the abuse and lack of information to which beneficiaries are subject to. So, first of all, with narratives, what can I tell you about what, which were the findings? First is, as I had mentioned before, they, the narratives are reinforcing the traditional gender order and gender stereotypes. And because of that, are out of sync with people's realities understandings of gender and their household arrangements. So first of all is that we saw that women are the main recipients of benefits of, of tree 
out of five programs that we were able to to look at with a lot of detail. And what we found is that women are taken as the primary caregivers. They are making them having to take children to school, to go to talks that are mandatory for, for them to, you know, have information, training, awareness, racism by the, by the promoters of the, of the program at the community level. And that because of this, men are completely exempted from the responsibility of these caregiving responsibilities that are embedded, that are, that are critical to these social protection programs. And so because of that, they keep overburdening women and critical expectations about them, the success or failure of programs being on their shoulders, basically. So we also found that a lot of the narratives that are being promoted by these frontline uh, implementers at community centers on the bi-monthly talks are basically telling women, you know, we give you the money because we know where you're going to use it well. We don't give it to men because they would use this money wrongly. They would use this in temptation goods, such as aggregates, alcohol, or even the companionship of particular uh, of certain women so this actually what we found is that this does not really reflect the realities of people we asked several women whether their husbands or even neighbors or, or men they knew in their community would spend in a in a bad way the money that they received with other programs like Proagro. and in none of the cases of the families in different communities that we were able to interview, none of them responded that they had ever seen a case like this happening, but that rather men were supportive of women using this money for the welfare of the family, right? We saw that the narratives are completely out of sync. Secondly, we found that there are conditionalities. What are conditionalities? Basically that this, this money is received with strings attached. They're prescriptive. They say, okay, we give you this money, but you have to take children to school, go to checkups, attend these workshops that we'll give here monthly or bi-monthly. So these, as I mentioned before, reinforce the division of labor, but have uh, implications into the time poverty and the burden that women have. So on top of things, women not only have to fulfill their reproductive roles within the house, but they are supposed with, uh, to also engage in productive activities to have the resources needed to make ends meet in their families because the money received is not enough. So basically the conditionalities, as I said, are only for women, reinforce these stereotypes, but make them the responsible for the success and failures of programs. And by being too prescriptive, limit the ability of people to really decide what is the best way of investing the money, being extremely paternalistic and condescending. So a lot of the conditionalities cannot be met, and, and that is the key element that I want to highlight here. There's a lot of people that have the condition of going to medical checkups, but the school in which their children were going was miles away because the one that they had closer had not enough seats for their children. 
So service provision was critical to ensure that the program worked well. A lot of people were excluded, penalized, taken out of the programs because they couldn't make those conditionalities. We saw them as quite pervasive for a lot of people. And we saw that, which is very much linked to the third point, that people will rather prefer to out-exclude themselves. And that keeps me to think about, you know, the third point, which is exactly the exclusion errors. What are the exclusion errors? Well, the, uh, for example, the agricultural productivity program, which is the one that was more aligned to, to CIMIT's work uh, in the promotion of sustainable livelihoods, only opened its enrollment 20 years ago and never opened it again in these communities. So, so people that were able to access ProAgra, for instance, were people that had land titles. So if you didn't have a land title, you couldn't access the program. That really talks to the social inclusion perspective we were talking before, because you are aiming to serve those that are the most vulnerable, that are excluded and marginalized. And basically you're using as an entry point a proxy that represents power and is not easily accessible by those that are the most marginalized and excluded, segregating within the community and the society. At the beginning, ProAgro had already embedded an element of a lot of exclusion to those that were the most vulnerable and particularly also for women who traditionally have lots of obstacles to access land titling. Also, it is very costly and it takes, it takes a lot of time which poses a lot of opportunity costs and tangible material costs to people to ensure that they have the titling. Then you have people that have the, the land, but still out excluded themselves because they mistrust the government. And we will talk about why do they mistrust the government, why the word of the government has such a low value for the amazing people we met in our film with. But a lot of people had excluded themselves and did not want to report that they owned the land, even if they had the title, because they thought that the land was going to be taken from their hands. So it is very interesting also to see that even if some people access the program, it's very much branded as for poor and vulnerable people. And since there were, there's people within the community that are equally poor, or uh, somewhat poorer than others, probably, for example, with Prospera and Proagro. This actually has exacerbated tensions and even the stigma of certain population groups because it is targeted. It is given to certain people that meet certain characteristics. Not Proagro, which, as I said, looks very much uh, into, you know, if you have a land and a land title, but what about the others that are giving you in-kind food and a cash transfer or uh, a box full of milk for your family? It is for people that meet certain criteria a little bit more than others, but the others feel that they're also in positions of poverty and vulnerability and they're not recognized and they're not giving them something that they desperately need to have from the government. So that creates, as I said, tensions it creates a stigma for certain programs. In fact, one of the programs is called Vulnerable Marginalized People. So already from the title, you kind of label people in that way. 
So we need to advance a rights-based approach in the development of these programs. So this is, this is very interesting. You've spoken about uh, narratives, conditionalities, and exclusion errors. But, but you mentioned there are five points that you want to talk about here. What about the, the other two? Regularity and predictability of social production programs and abuse and lack of information. So I said that regularity and predictability because, for example, with ProAgro, that is this agricultural livelihoods promotion program, we found that in 20 years of this program, it has never arrived on time. I mean, it is an agricultural program. Therefore, it needs to look at the seasonality. So why does this impact the success of the program? Or why does it hinder the, the, the promise uh, or the potential of this program to really improve the lives of these people? Well, for a simple issue, seasonality. Since the time should be aligned with the, with the agricultural cycle. But as it arrives after the planting season, people get in debt. They get the money to be able to, to, to do their agricultural activities on which they heavily rely on the support of the government because it's, it's extremely expensive and they have to deal with all the risk of this. So what they do is that they get in debt and when they get the money, they have to pay the interest on the money that they took as a loan. And they didn't take this money as a loan from a bank because they are not eligible and a lot of the financial services need collateral and these people are, do not have a lot of assets or people in their networks that have enough of money to vouch for them. They, they take this from local loan sharks, let's say, that have huge interest rates and therefore when the money arrives which has never as I said in 20 years arrived on time they have to pay not only the money that they need but they need to pay the interest therefore ProAgra as a program in the communities where we go has never been able to really fulfill its promise of promoting the livelihoods to the level that it could so that is one of the of, of the key issues here. And then it also has detrimental repercussions for social risk management strategies because people could be able to have a buffer in case of a risk. So it seems like you're very passionate about this work and these these people that you that you work with. Can I ask how was meeting them and do you have any stories about the the impact of, of this work well thank you mary that's such a beautiful question indeed i was very touched by the generosity of, of the people we met in mexico so for example the doña maria in in the sierra mazateca who told me that thanks to the cash transfer that she received she always saved a little, little, little bit so she could buy a blender because before she had to grind on her own and do the, every, every food if she wanted to smash a seed. So she saved the money and she was able now to save time of her day 
and be able to focus on on other activities that she wanted to because she had a blender because a, a lot of the things that she could later sell and do for for her own food and for the family she was now you know able to do them she was able to purchase a blender thanks to the benefits of this so it kind of like you know she she was very happy to to take them to her house and in her courtyard to bring out the the blender that she had been able to buy also of Don Pedro who I met with his wife and you saw with him and Don Juan as well and Don Alfredo I found men that saw in their in their wives really a synchronization of incentives that the the benefit that this brought not only for their children but for their house for their their entire families so they could just eat there that they could do investments and if their wife wanted to embark in an activity productively or you know just take something she had learned from the workshops then they were really supportive of it doña rosalia was not such a positive story because she out excluded herself being a single mother because she realized that while she had to go uh, and meet the conditionalities she could just use the time to sell chickens and go to towns close by so she out excluded herself and I found it really a pity that you know you could tell and she recognized that she needed the money but that it was such a complication to her, such a hassle, that she would rather take that time to work hard and find the resources on her own. So I will always cherish and treasure their stories, their generosity, and, and the challenges that they confront have really influenced me to think how to bring you know their stories forward, to think with others, how can we make not only the Mexican program better, but others, that have used Progresa, Oportunidades, Prospera, Proagro, all these programs as a, as a blueprint, as an example. So I think that we can do it better for these people. And from CIMID, we, through this research, we're advancing and revealing the ways in which we can do it. Thank you for sharing these stories. You mentioned that CIMID is, is working on this. So, so what are the solutions that, that CIMID is working on? Well, what we came with is that, you know, a couple of them. One of the things that I have said and repeated a lot is that we need to stress fatherhood as much as motherhood in both program design and implementation, just not to put all the responsibility on the shoulders of women first. So the other thing is that we need to shift our emphasis in conditionalities to co-responsibilities where both men and women are equally placed to do this, you know, to, to go and take their children to school. But also that we talk about co-responsibilities between the state and the beneficiary. And in what sense the co-responsibility of the state? On several things that I also lay out, which is first on improving your communication, the information you provide to beneficiaries, and the complaint mechanisms so people can talk complain and ask what they need. We also said that need, more studies needs to be made to inform the narratives, as I, as I said, regarding the roles of men and women, 
So we need to show that mental spending behavior, it's not really the one that is promoted out there in temptation goods. But actually, there's men, and the majority of men are also thinking about the welfare of their families and also bring that forward. So it also brings other men to do this in a spiral of good and good stereotypes. We need to confront ideology in program design. This is something I also wrote in a, in a blog for Development Pathway to question the role of women as the sole recipients of benefits because the mounting body of evidence is showing that when money is received by men and men have to also meet those conditionalities on human capital development for children, they have the same results as women. That women are just placed in the center of, of this because of the traditional roles that we have in our head, mainly. And secondly, which I find the fair argument is that we need to give more resources to women so they have greater power of decision-making and agency, of course. But we still need to confront the ideology because that ideology is actually preventing women to really exert that agency, but we're confining them to the domestic and reproductive roles. So those are, in general terms, some of the recommendations that we gave in that particular study, in which I think it's, you know, we are trying to, not just to point at the bad things that are going on, but concretely propose the actions that can be made to make these programs better. So you brought up some some excellent points of and work that, that we've been doing. And, and finally, I wanted to ask, what, what will be your next endeavors in research? Well, very interesting. One point is that I would love to look more into feminities. You see, this men and masculinity in this field is, is striving in a way. So I want to bring, since gender is a re- relational concept and should be a relational discipline per se, and I want to see uh, the interaction between masculinities and femininities and how each of this influence each other's in their definition. So second, research endeavor would be on advancing the social inclusion lens, exploring more the issue of biases, both the biases that prevent farmers from taking the best decisions, but also the biases of rural advisory service providers and researchers. How do they mediate in the provision of the the right information and the targeting of the right people? Thirdly, I think that a lot of work needs to be done on social protection, and I have two things that I would like to delve deeper in. First is looking at the pathways in which social protection is maximizing and achieving food security, particularly in its four dimensions on availability, access, utilization of food and the stability of this. Also, how is social protection addressing and tackling the social determinants of food security? And on that field of social protection, finally, I would like to keep working on dismidifying a lot of the myths, uh, that we have 
around that wine, this cash transfers and benefits create dependency by those that receive it, that men particularly are using this money for the wrong uses, and that cash transfers or these benefits may exacerbate uh, the violence against women, that the men are not as reliable to manage the money and they don't know what they would do. And certainly here, I think that the key thing by doing this is looking at how are we going to make social protection truly inclusive by how to address the different obstacles of different populations and not generalizing that because you're a woman or you're a man or you are of this particular community, then you are more vulnerable. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cobs and Spikes. You can subscribe by searching for Cobs and Spikes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. In our next episode, we're going to answer the question, what is conservation agriculture? Thank you.